Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Rachel Nannon Brown, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. Woke up this morning, had a burning deep inside. Like when you're feeling it's all a big lie. I feel the pain. This hunger, despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching Time for us to share Alright, well, following the Bob Dylan zone of the local group, Natural Selection, this is Left of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. And hello, Nancy. Welcome, hello, Nancy. Nancy's thank always you, with us. Yeah, thank you. I always feel welcome. You guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't think we could do this show without you anymore, Nancy. That's for sure. Yes, uh, yes, you could. But see, that's how great you are. You want to give me a compliment right in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> We're always happy to have you here. <laughs> we got a great show going on today. we got lots of stuff to go through. Uh, we actually have, uh, we're going to call this show, Help Me, I'm a Slacktivist. And uh, we actually have, uh, of course, this day in history we're going to have to do with Nancy, of course. We have another brilliant moment. We have the adventures of Father Vern coming up. And we also have things that make you go, hmm. And we also have a small interview with a fellow Neil that's trying to change things around. And Karen's got this huge thing on activism today. But before all that, uh, I want to get a few things off my chest. I mean, you guys are like my therapy group now with the oh, audience really? as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know if that's an honor or not. <laughs> or my bartender. Call it what you want. Um, there's a few things that have been going on. There's so many things that have been going on in the past couple of weeks. And uh, there's a few things I wanted to quickly address. Uh, you guys heard of the um, at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, a, a fellow decided to kill three uh, three young people, and they happened to be Muslim. And he happened to be an atheist. Uh, now, the police says that uh, it was due to a parking dispute. Um, I want to talk to, uh, about this a bit because, uh, well, first of all, the, the media focused on the fact that he was an atheist, which I think is not right. And because I have a, a friend who happens to be Muslim, and he, she basically kind of looked at me and said, well, as an, as an atheist, do you think you should feel the burden to apologize for something like that? And <laughs> I kind of wanted to address that a bit, right? Um, first of all, um, the uh, this this person, I'm not even going to mention his name uh, because I don't think I, I don't want to distance myself from him or, or, or what he did, and nor do I feel responsible in having to apologize for this person. Uh, this person didn't cry out for atheism or for science and then shot three people, uh, as opposed to the Charlie Hebdo thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I was I was kind of a bit ticked by the fact that I was asked that by by him. But it's a friend of mine. Well, just to play devil's advocate, I think uh, I can understand why a Muslim would say that because every time there's a Muslim extremist who does something, then someone goes, a group of people go to a mosque and start threatening all those innocent Muslims who are there who have done nothing violent in their whole lives. Like they are constantly being asked to apologize and and take responsibility for things that extremists do. And sure, they do it in the name of their religion, but there's a huge divide between an yeah. extremist Muslim and a regular Muslim. And, and I totally agree with that. And I totally agree with that. But the the difference is there. There is no atheist book out there or something like that that says you need to go out and shoot people that don't agree with science or non or, or not atheists. And I agree with that, yes. And it, uh, th- I think that makes all the difference. Yes, yes but, but 
but then again, why should someone assume that because someone is an atheist and commits either a good or bad deed, that every atheist has to accept responsibility and issue either an apology or say, yep, that's one of our group. We're all proud. Mm-hmm. No, We're, but, you know? but I think Karen is right that we have a tendency to kind of um, sort of ask that of Muslims to say, you know, to, to denounce the attack. Uh, but the, the entire difference happens on the the fact that Muslims, or it doesn't have to be Muslims, it could be Christians, have a holy book that says, mm-hmm. that condones these kind of actions. Yeah. Atheism doesn't have any tenet yeah. that basically and says I, something I like that. I agree with that. And and it would be different if he'd said, for science or for yeah, Richard exactly. Dawkins or something like yeah, that. That's a different Richard thing. Richard Dawkins is avenge and shoot three people. No, then, you know, this is a nutcase. And uh, I just wanted to make that uh, that point there because, you know, I've been asked and, sort of address this, and now I think I have. I think it's true, and I think you're probably not unique. I think there are probably a lot of atheists who have had exactly the same conversations with their friends, and it is. It can get it can get awkward, but we need to air it and get it out in mm-hmm. the open, absolutely. Perfect. And I think it's interesting that they made a big deal that he's an atheist. I mean, if he'd been a Christian, would that even have been mentioned, or would it just have been some guy had a parking dispute and killed three people? Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I think that's how it would have been reported. I think it's the fact that he's an atheist is being dragged out for no particular reason. Yeah, the, the media just played totally on that, and I don't know why. I mean, uh, it's... it's like you I think said. it's pandering to people that oh, totally, you know are totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think I think all the religions right now are realizing and this is why we're seeing more and more like fatwas against atheism in the, in the Muslim world and you know more and more uh, atheist news if you could say in in, in the Christian world because they're seeing it. They're seeing the tide coming and they're saying we can't stop this. And so they're going to go, you know, kicking and screaming all the way and this is part of it, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, on better news. Feel news-y. better. Yeah, well, I, I got a, a bit of a better news for that. Um, Sun Media and Sun News shut down a couple of weeks ago, and good riddance. You know, uh, they were dubbed Fox News North, and they were trying to mimic the style of hate-filled, inaccurate news that Fox News is known for. It didn't take here in Canada. Uh, they barely got any market penetration. Apparently, uh, one figure said they only had eight thousand subscribers, and uh, they're gone. And Great for that, and I just wish our American friend could actually follow the example, and 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 do the same thing with their Fox News. I think. I, go ahead. It's an interesting story because when I read that that headline, "Oh, Sun News is closing," I'm like, "What's Sun News? I didn't even know it existed." Yeah. So, well, that's oh, good, I make, guess. <laughs> you make me feel so much better because I was going to have to confess I hadn't <laughs> I hadn't been aware of them. Yeah, me either. Thank you. No, I guess uh, that's no. the reason they closed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was quite, I was quite aware of Fox News. There was a lot of uh, petition and stuff like that. It was saying, you know, stop Sun News and. Uh, with the, uh, the the Harper government trying to cut down on the CBC and then encouraging things like that to come in, you know, you could see where this was going. Uh, but, you know, the invisible hand of the market that they're so proud and talk about all the time <laughs> on the right-hand side there, on the, the right wing, basically told them, F off. You know? Oh. So uh, that's good for, that's great news. Um, but I got to ask one more little thing I got to say is, uh, you guys know the name Ezra Levant? Pardon? Ezra Levant. Yeah, I know the name, but I can't remember. He was a reporter for Fox News, uh, well, Fox News, sorry, uh, Sun Sun News, and he's essentially he's a mouthpiece for big oil, and uh, he's a, he's a controversial figure, and he's like one of those guys like Steve Moore and, and stuff like that. And he's and CKNW gave him some more air time this week, and I got asked CKNW 980 here in, in Vancouver why why the guy's a shill. Okay, 
stop bringing this guy on your news. I mean, I, I can understand you want to bring some little controversy to, uh, to 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 boost your ratings, but CKW for Christ's sake, and you know, no pun intended, uh, get this guy off the air. I mean, he's 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 a waste of time. He's a waste of energy, and you know, and like I said, the market decided that he was mm-hmm. just not worth your time. So anyway, that was my. My thing for today. <laughs> okay, well, you can, you can well, get up off. You can get out of the couch now. Thank and you for back listening to the throne. <laughs> to <Lester laughs> the Valley. That right. concludes today's show. No, no, those are those are great issues. Yeah, I'm, those I'm are glad valid. you brought them up. And you should be irritated. And those things yeah. that that everybody should oh, totally. be having conversations about. Mm-hmm. So you may have started some good conversations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I sure hope yeah. so. Thanks for bringing them up. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we'll go back to our usual. Oops, there we go. Our data history. Alrighty, this day in history, which is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated February the 16th to March the 1st, which is today. Happy March the 1st. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's start with February the 18th, which was Independence Day in Gambia. So we've got a story on February the 18th that has everything that I love. It's got shenanigans and politics <laughs> and great names, as you probably know by this time. If there's a great name in a story, <laughs> I don't care about the story. I'll tell it just for the great name. <laughs> okay, awesome. so here's here's the, I don't know whether to say the hero, but here's the, the star of our story on February the 18th. Here we go. Pedro Jose Domingo de la Calzada Manuel Maria Las Corain Paredes. Well, that's a, <laughs> wow. That's, that's a that is a name. That's almost taking up the, the length of the story. <laughs> anyway, he was a Mexican politician who served as the 34th president of Mexico for less than one hour. <laughs> it took them that long to say his name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they couldn't fit on the plaque. That, yeah, exactly. Anyway, he was. it was the shortest presidency in the history of the world, which is really saying something. So here's, here's the story. <laughs> the um, General Victorino Huerta overthrew the president and ousted the vice president and attorney general who had been in power. So under the Mexican Constitution, after the Attorney General, the Foreign Minister and the Interior Minister stood in line next for the presidency. So Las Corain was the Foreign Minister. So Huerta had Las Corain assume the presidency, appoint him as Interior Minister, making him next in line to the presidency, and then resign. So he did <laughs> well, what he... Yeah, I know, it's wonderful. So Las Corain did exactly what he was supposed to do. He um, uh, made the, uh, Huerta next in line and then resigned. And the sources say that it was probably between 15 and 56 minutes where he actually ruled. So to date, that <laughs> presidency <laughs> was the shortest. And for those of you who are curious about Huerta, who obviously had a devious turn of mind. This is great. He resigned and then was exiled within the year, came to the U.S. where he contacted German operatives to offer his services in waging war against the U.S. This was in 1913. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. So he was subsequently arrested, and then he died in prison of either cirrhosis of the liver or poisoning. (laughs) 
There's a biography in there for sure. There That's is. awesome. There is. Or a movie. There's a movie, a yeah. Movie, there's, yeah. A movie. there's a movie in there. So, Okay, moving on to February the 19th, which was Chinese New Year. And in 1898, that was the date that Thomas Edison patented the phonograph and recorded the famous sentence, Mary had a little, little lamb. Okay. And from that to left at the valley. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Cool. Straight line. <laughs> February the 22nd was Celebrity Day in Scientology. I thought that was kind of strange. But okay. There you go. Scientology. <laughs> there you go. Who is it that's just now um, coming into into question in Scientology? The big... Um, L. Ron Hubbard? No, no, the actor who Tom Cruise. No, no, the actor that flies the plane and John Travolta. Yeah, yeah, he's coming into some kind of controversy. I'm not sure you can call him an actor. Anyway, anyway, in 1995, in uh, February the 22nd, Steve Fawcett landed in Leader, Saskatchewan. Uh, He'd flown from South Korea to become the first person to make a solo flight across the Pacific in a balloon. Oh, cool. Isn't that cool? He was great. Uh, this is going to sound familiar. He's a, He was an American businessman and a record-setting adventurer. He was the first person to fly solo nonstop around the world in a balloon. He was a swimmer. He was a triathlon guy. I mean, he just did it all. And if it sounds sort of like Richard Branson... You're right. They were buddies. They were both millionaire buddies and <laughs> did a lot together. So, cool. Yeah, unfortunately, Steve uh, Fawcett died in a plane accident, uh, but he was doing the things he loved, so that was okay. Um, February 23rd is National Day in Brunei, and that was a big day in history. Some days are just like that. Um, that was the day that the Gutenberg Bible was printed. It was uh, the Battle of the Alamo. It was the day that Cuba leased Guantanamo Bay to the U.S. in mm. perpetuity, wow. which I'm sure they're not thrilled with all the time. I don't think anybody's thrilled with that. Yeah. And then most important, in 1896, the Tootsie Roll was invented. <laughs> That's a great day in history. Great day. Well, you got to end every day on a sweet <laughs> note. So. Okay. Sorry, which, which day is that? February... February the 23rd. 23rd, Tootsie Roll Day. The Tootsie Roll Day, absolutely. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Coming up to February the 24th, this is a real day for short story. This should be the short story day in history. February the 24th was Flag Day in Mexico, but we all know about the War of the Worlds, but have you heard about the Battle of Los Angeles? This is great. This is wonderful. Sure, that's not one of those Mad Max things? No, no. <laughs> this is this is the truth. Um in 1942, on February the 24th, in Los Angeles, something it was uh, about three months after the United States entered World War II, so everybody was kind of jumpy about the Japanese. We saw, I know what you're going to say, go ahead. <laughs> we saw a special about this on TV. I was going to say, uh, there was a special on this, I think on the History Channel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so there was this unknown large bright object that appeared in the sky over Los Angeles. And in the morning, air raid sirens sounded all throughout Los Angeles County, and the anti-aircraft batteries went nuts. They just lobbed shells and fired machine guns, and people were calling in, and it was reported all over the Los Angeles area. And uh, over 1,400 rounds were fired during the alert, 
and the shelling was witnessed by thousands of, of people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them didn't see the original event, but they all saw the shelling. And as a result, eight people died, five from shrapnel and three from heart attack. So it, wow. was, a, it was a major event. So shortly after that, the Secretary of the Navy called the incident a false alarm, and uh, newspapers reported it, and there were speculations of uh, cover-up, and even some of the modern, uh, some of the the um, uh, uh, UFO enthusiasts at the time really felt that there was a cover-up and that there must have been a UFO. So the U.S. Office of Air Force History attributed the event to a case of war nerves. But I know a UFOlogist, a UFOlogist who swears there really was <laughs> a UFO in the sky and not the you weather balloon. The truth. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's front page news all over the Pacific Coast. And then there actually was a movie um, made by a group called The Asylum. And it premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2011. So moving to today, which mm-hmm. is March the 1st, um, Karen and I are going to love this. It's the start of National Women's History Month. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I know. That was in 1987. Um, so happy start of National Women's History Month. And uh, the event in 1896 was that um, radioactivity was discovered um, when Henry, I'm going to butcher his name, Becquerel, uh, discovered a photographic plate that he left in a desk drawer with crystals of uranium compound on it. And he shared the 1903 Nobel Prize with Pierre and Marie Curie. Yeah. For their work on radioactivity. Yeah. Okay. It was the show we actually did. Yeah, the we last discussed Marie Curie. Yeah. Isn't oh. that funny? You just open your drawer and oh look, there's some uranium in my desk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean you don't have any? Yeah. I know. I feel so bad. My drawer is just full of junk. <laughs> I'm going to have to find something to stick in it so it at least glows in the dark. <laughs> And that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. That was, yeah, they're always good, but that one was particularly good. I like that. <laughs> I, want, I know. Some weeks are better than others. I want to throw a wrench in there, ladies, since I, bo- I have both of you here, and uh, you know you said it's... Um, Women's Month, right? Uh, History <laughs> Month for women. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I saw an interview not too long ago where they were talking about Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And they were actually talking to uh, Morgan Freeman. And Morgan Freeman basically said that's a ridiculous thing to have. He said Black History is just history. So how do you feel about that, about Women's History Month? Should we just actually look at it or should we just say, you know, women's history is just history? Do you want to go first, Nancy? Sure. I think I think there should be a Black History Month, a Women's History Month, a Children's Month. I think those kinds of things give recognition to um, events and people we sometimes ignore, overlook, or um, put in a category of less than worthy. Mm-hmm. And I think it stimulates discussion. And in, in some ways, I think it does give people a sense of pride for belonging, a a, a well-deserved sense of pride. Mm -hmm. So I realize that it can be commercial, um, and there are certainly 
uh, you know, creepy aspects of it in, in, mm-hmm. in some ways if it's overdone. But in, in all respects, I think there's more good than bad. Okay. Uh, we'll oh. be right back right after this. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Center. Please visit our website for more details at bchumanist.ca. All right, now we're back. You want to add more about that conversation, Karen? Well, I I both agree and disagree with Morgan Freeman, but I think... You cannot disagree with Morgan Freeman. He's oh, gone. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> um, that if if we lived in a, a, an equal world where black people were treated as equals to white people, um, then we should not have a Black History Month. If we lived in a world where women are treated as equal to men, we should not have a Women's History Month. But we still do not live in that world, and I think until we do, we need to keep recognizing these people's stories, recognize that women just ha- didn't ex- like in history books they don't exist for the last you know uh, however many hundred years, but but they did exist. And until we can sort of make the places equal and, and recognize the contributions that people have made to our world history and and accept them as equals and such so much so that it, it's completely like why would you even be mentioning this women are equal then yeah okay at that point we don't need women's history month but we are far away from that and the same with black history and the black people they're not and I, and I think Morgan Freeman is coming at that from a real place of privilege Did you just call him Margaret Freeman? No I said Morgan Freeman but he's coming at that from a real place of privilege whereas a child who's been raised you know, by a single mom in a ghetto is probably going to need that kind of encouragement that maybe he doesn't have that history of Martin Luther King and, and, and the Black Panthers and all those things. And if he can learn that and know that, then that's going to give him a sense of purpose that he might not otherwise have. Okay, Morgan, if you're listening, send your hate mail at Karen. <laughs> <laughs> if Morgan Freeman or any other individual can't take a challenge to their opinion, then I don't have a lot of respect for them. Ooh. Right on, Karen. That, that kitty's got claws today. Yeah. Well... Got so many things to go on there, but you know what? I've got so many stories that I had to pick one. Uh, I actually picked two, which takes us into our next segment, which of course you guys all love that next segment. Which is? Which is? <laughs> you'll get in a minute. Let me just click it there. Oh. Another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. Yeah, the wacky world of religion. But, you know, today it's not really so wacky. It is wacky, but, you know, it's kind of ang- makes me angry, actually. Um, you guys all know about ISIS. What's ISIS? <laughs> sorry, I, I'm sorry. ISIL? You prefer ISIL? <laughs> no, it's okay. I'll just sit here and dance to the music quietly. <laughs> well, apparently, they destroyed 3,000 years of history in uh, by attacking some museums. And I got this from uh, Gawker.com and uh, from the uh, also the uh, the Guardian. Um, apparently, ISIS contends that museum pieces are works of religious idolaters, and that, according to Islam, is a no-no. So they took sledgehammers to pieces from the uh, Assyrian Empire, which is from 2500 BC to about 605 BC, and they were filming this and posted it on Twitter. Um, it was at the uh, Mosul Museum in Iraq, 
which is actually currently held by it's one of the parts of Iraq that's actually currently held by uh, ISIS. Um, and this comes just days later after apparently 100,000, as what is estimated, 100,000 priceless manuscripts were destroyed in the Mosul uh, Central Library. Uh, the Guardian reported that the head of the uh, UNESCO, which is the uh, UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, voiced alarm over one of the most devastating acts of destruction of library collection in human history. And a um, Ninwa Al Chad, a broadcasting channel, apparently, uh, reported that amongst the burning of libraries and universities were maps and books from the Ottoman period. And it all culminated with the ISIS videos of Milton destroying a statue of a winged bull an Assyrian deity dating back to the 9th century. Any thoughts on this? Besides shaking your head in disbelief? It's so hard to put into words the horror and the butchery that went on. I mean, there's just... I'm having a hard time putting it into words, so I'll I'll be quiet and let the two of you carry on. I have nothing to say to that. I think... you know, this, this, this might this might sound a bit heartless for me to say that, but this to me is a bigger crime than killing people actually, uh, because you're actually erasing history at mm-hmm. that point, and that that is a bigger crime. I mean, people die, and it's a horrible thing. Don't get me wrong, right? It's it's always a horrible thing, but when you're actually going after history itself, uh, you're not just erasing people; you're erasing their culture, you're erasing everything these people mm-hmm. stood for. You know, mm-hmm. whether you agree with it or not. You know, there's a lot of things we don't agree with. But I'd be the first one to say, you know, we shouldn't be going out there and destroying churches. No, it's true. Exactly. It's everything, everything that built our civilization and brought us to this point, yeah. it, it was irreplaceable. I yeah. don't know, and maybe you do, were, were any of these works uh, photographed, or is there any record of them I, any place uh, else? At some place I read that some of the originals are actually in the Museum of Baghdad, which is being reopened. Yes, and in some defiance. of these were replicas, but I have not been able to find out whether that's true or not. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I also saw a, I, so. I saw an article I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find it. There, there was an article about uh, the quote unquote monument men. Uh, that we're trying to move the stuff out before ISIS actually got to that museum. And I sure hope they were successful. I was wondering about that because I would think there'd be a lot of people who are very concerned about that sort of thing happening who would try to take measures to, to save these pieces. But I have not, I have not read anything about it, but I, I hope that someone yeah, is able to Yeah, but do it's, that. it's a difficult task to do, when you, especially sure. when you're war zone. And the last crime that sort of happened like that was... Uh, the Baghdad Museum, right? After the uh, yeah. U.S. forces, I mean, they were yeah. more than happy to station some troops to protect the oil fields, but the museums were just looted, and that, that is a crime against humanity right there. It is, mm-hmm. and now it's being reopened. Yeah, now apparently uh, the museum decided to reopen in defiance of I- ISIL. Well, uh, they're, they're certainly fulfilling their goal of being terrorists and destroying mm-hmm. everything in their path in order to to uh, dominate the region and uh, and eventually wipe out Western civilization. That's what they want to do. Totally. Uh, and I, I was I wanted to bring this up because I remember our friend Ahmed that we uh, mm-hmm. interviewed. Uh, he was talking to me the other day, and uh, he was uh, telling me about uh, how he went to Egypt. Uh, he's from, he's an Egyptian, so he goes to Egypt once in a while, right? Um, uh, and uh, he was in the mosque, and he was shaking his head at a conversation where the, 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 the imam was actually preaching from the uh, preaching sorry preaching from the pulpit that we should destroy the pyramids and the Sphinx because you know same thing idolatry and it's like really? <laughs> 
I, I don't know. I see the pyramids. I think I think a marvel of engineering, and it's incredible. I'm trying to find out how they built it. Not oh my god, this is Amon Ra's temple, and we must destroy it because it offends my flying spaghetti monster. I can't believe that they feel so so threatened and so frightened that they would even suggest that. I mean, why not you turn it around and say, look, um, that this is such people believe they have so much faith that they would build these huge structures and and worship their god in that way. Like, isn't that a better way to look at it or, than to say we have to destroy it because it wasn't our god? Or but maybe if, you want to. If they looked at it that way, they wouldn't be extremists. I mean, that's the difference between rational thought and those that yeah. are so polarized at their point of view. You're where right. you ask them, what would it take for you to open or change your mind, and they say nothing because yeah. I bear the truth. Yeah. Although personally, yeah. I prefer to call them fundamentalists and fundamentalists, extremists. Exactly. And when your fundamentalists do that, that kind of makes you wonder what's wrong with the fundamentals of that's, your religion. That's why I like extremism. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you would think that if they really wanted to something like that, they should outdo, you know, outdo them, make something even yeah. more grand. You know, if all is so great, make make some build something even more grand to. Allah, God, Buddha, whoever, right? You think that that'd be the way to go? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got something a bit lighter for you guys as well. Uh, looks like I'm picking on Muslims this week today. I'm sorry, I'm not. It's not about that. It's just those these stories kind of really pop out at you. There's a Saudi cleric that appeared in a video where he rejects the Earth revolve around the sun. <laughs> this is from Al Arabia.net. This is a um, uh, uh, the student asked Sheikh Bandar Al. Kaibari, I hope I've got this right, if the Earth was stationary or moving, he replied that the Earth was stationary and doesn't move. Of course, he tried to support his arguments by quoting religious texts, but, and then he used, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see me on the radio, logical deduction, uh, with uh, the example that if a plane flew straight up, right, and it doesn't move, it's just like hovering, if you wish, and the Earth rotated, you'd eventually reach China, because China would just rotate towards you, right? <laughs> so, But if the Earth was rotating the other way, then you'd never reach China, because China would be rotating away from your plane as well. <laughs> so, And he also claimed that man never went to the moon, that's Hollywood fabrication. Now, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I'm confused. Well... <laughs> Technically, so is he. <laughs> well, yeah. Te- technically, he, he's he's essentially say- well. In a way, he's actually right. Uh, you know, if if you rotate, if you hovered above the Earth, yeah, it would right. move underneath you very slowly, yeah, it but sure would. would. It would. Uh, but he's basically saying that if you jump up in the air and you land in the same spot, the Earth's not moving. Oh, which is okay. he's thinking you should be able to jump up in the air, the Earth would move underneath you, and you would land in a different spot. We wouldn't even need airplanes at that point. That'd be cool. I think we, I've, I've, oh, we started this technology now. You could just jump, <laughs> jump your way to China. Yeah, yeah, look at that. Well, either the man is incredibly creative or he's nuts, yeah. and I think it's probably a little bit. A I don't think so. I think, I think this is what happens when you only study religion. You end up with an adult that understands science like a five-year-old. Exactly. The, mm-hmm. This explanation works very well if you're five. You know, uh, of course, yours doesn't move. <laughs> See, I'm jumping here and nothing's moving. Of course, it, it doesn't move. I'm not sure I would have bought that even when I was five, but well, <laughs> but that's the same as the yeah. flat earthers. There's yeah. a really very little difference between yeah, totally. what he's believing and and the flat earth society. Yeah, and, and one Twitter uh, uh, comment was pretty cool because it remarked that it was an interesting coincidence that our cleric here would make that comment on Galileo's birthday, <laughs> which is February 15th. <laughs> So ironic. <laughs> there is there is a beauty to that. Though, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Okay, you guys are ready for more Adventures of Father Word? Lay it on it. Okay. Now it's time for another installment of The Adventures of Father Vern. This week, we find Father Vern in the confessional. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. My son, I am here to receive your confession for the Lord. Father, I'm 50 years old and I've been married happily for 30 years. I have never looked at another woman with desires and I have been faithful all this time. That's quite commendable, my son. But lately, this young and beautiful Catholic girl moved in next door with her family, and she has led me astray. Astray? Oh, yeah, way astray. The things she's done to me and the things I've done to her, oh, like that time with the horse stirrups and... Uh, yes, indeed, my son, you have sinned. When was the last time you came to confession? Never. It's my first time. I'm Jewish. <laughs> then... Why come to me? Why tell me? <laughs> With a story like that, I'm telling everybody. Before you go, my friend, can you do me a favor? Sure. Uh, do you know if she has a little brother? <laughs> Join us next time for more Adventures with Father Vern. <laughs> well, that was Father Vern. <laughs> You're not liking the Adventures of Father Vern? I'm speechless every time. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, today's show is about slacktivism. Um, how do you want to do this? you want to go the whole slacktivism thing and the, the interview after? you want to do the interview, the little interview before? I also, I also got a things that make you go, hmm, which actually ties into it. I think we should do the interview first. The interview then, first? Yeah. And then uh, we can discuss slacktivism. Okay. So I guess I'll do, activism. The, I'll do the things that make you go, hmm, first. Right? <laughs> Well, I mean, and this I'll is the Kevin show today. <laughs> it's the Kevin show every day. You said it. You, you, you'll understand. You'll understand about this because you know it's like I said. It's, it's about activism. So. All right. This is a um, an interesting story that out of the uh, nationofchange.org. Teens are suing the U.S. government for failing to act on climate change. Um, with their future at stake, uh, teens are demanding that the U.S. government takes action. Um, Bill Nye uh, actually spoke briefly on the uh, Real Time with Bill Maher last Friday. Um, he basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, says, you know, we've known about this uh, since 1988, yet I've done nothing. Uh, so it's a non-profit uh, it's a non-profit Kids vs. Global Warming. 
And uh, they told the Outsider magazine that uh, scientists said we have 10 years to make changes if we want to stabilize the climate by um, the year 2100. And that was back in 2005. Uh, and we basically haven't done anything about it. Um, we care more about money and power than we do about future generations. Uh, the judicial system is the only branch of government not bought out by corporate interest. I'm not so sure about that, but anyway. Uh, it turn turns out there is some kind of uh, precedence in these types of matters. The Supreme Court in the U.S. has announced uh, the public trust doctrine in several cases before. In other words, they're basically saying that government is a trustee of the resources that support public welfare and survival. The doctrine requires the government to maintain uh, these uh, resources and maintain survival... Uh, yeah, making these survival resources for future generations. Uh, several other youth activist groups have joined in the fight, and the fight are both in the federal and state level. Uh, cases are pending in Oregon, uh, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Washington, Colorado, and many other states. So I guess the question is for you guys, are the kids going to shake the adults out of apathy on this? Yeah, this is where you come in. <laughs> What we're thinking. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't think they're going to shake anyone out of apathy. Are they going to force the government to actually do something uh, much against their wishes? Um, they might. I don't know. I don't really know how these things work in the States and Canada. I don't think this kind of thing would or could happen. Um, but in the States, they certainly rely on their courts to settle things much more than we do. I don't see why it could happen in Canada. Um well, we'd have to have that same kind of trusty um, legislation, or, and I don't know if we do or not. Yeah. So that's something to look into. It's a good question. But but they but we don't drag things in the courts nearly as often as Americans do. So I think this is interesting. I'm really impressed that these kids are are doing something and standing up, and that's really wonderful. And if it gets attention in the news, and that's great. I'm not sure. I just don't know. I have no idea whether or not it could succeed. I totally think that the reason we haven't moved on climate change yet is because the generation that's in power right now, essentially the boomers, uh, are not moving on it. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm not sure Generation X, my generation is moving on it, but it's moving to sure a lot more than the than the boomers. Um, just as an example, um, I was talking about Bill Nye on the Real Time with Bill Maher. I was watching the show. He also had a guest, which is Fran Lebowitz. She's a Leibowitz, okay, yeah. and she's a writer for uh, Vanity Fair. And uh, when when Bill Nye basically said, you know, the kids are basically saying, hey, you know, what have you guys done about this? You've known this for a, for a long time. Uh, she kind of showed the, uh, she exemplified to me the uh, disdain for action uh, because she basically she basically said um, uh, when Bill Moore was talking about a super drought, they're announcing apparently NASA's talking about a super drought, a mega drought in California. That might, uh, somewhere between now and uh, 2050, that might last over 10 years. She basically said, ah, Bill, you're not going to be there. Who cares? That was her answer, right? And when when uh, Bill Nye was basically saying, you know, the kids are angry that we haven't done anything about it, her answer was, kids, stop talking pictures pictures of your food and do something. To which a crowd applauded. And I think there's the problem. The problem is, is it's like, okay, we had our fun with the planet, and... We made the mess, but we don't want to clean up. It's up to you guys to clean up. That's what we're telling the younger generation, and I think that's the problem. And that's such an ignorant, uh, like in the real sense of the word, ignorant viewpoint, because, okay, kids who are born in the 80s are now, what, in their 30s. So probably they have been trying to do things. But when you are not 
part of the governing system, your hands are tied. So you have very limited ways to do things. And every time there's a protest, any time there's an action, these people are put in jail. They're belittled by the boomers. They're belittled by the government. Like, it's not like people haven't been trying to do things. It's the people in charge have been deliberately shackling them. And and it's not just their responsibility. I mean, it is our responsibility. It is everyone's responsibility at this point. So for the people who are actually in power to say, well, you know, you guys do something about it, that's ludicrous. You are just as uh, more culpable than any generation that follows, and it's your job to take some action. Oh, I agree. I think, in, I think in general, though, the, the public is for... Um, uh, they understand climate change. I think, by and large, most of the people go along with the scientists and agree that we need to do something. But as Karen says, and she's absolutely right, don't say that you don't understand a lot of what goes on in the states because you you just said it. The people who are in charge um, and those who are on the committees to get things done for the funding and to actually make changes are generally in the pocket of those Mm -hmm. who are into fossil fuels and are making big money and the legislation to do anything to to clean up the environment Mm -hmm. goes by the wayside so that they can keep putting more money in their pockets. And then you have people on the the, uh, Senate committees and the House committees that are climate change deniers. And unfortunately, since the Republicans in the states are in power, that means that the heads of these committees are now Republican. So why the Democrats... The Democrats could only do so much, but now that they're in the hands of the Republicans and climate deniers, it's going to be tough. But these kids need to keep doing what they're doing, and maybe eventually the, the public will have more of a voice. I, I still I still put that at the foot, uh, at the foot of the, the voter, because you know what? Uh, you're right. Um, politicians are being lobbied, and they're getting a lot of money, and they're doing exactly... Uh, what these companies are basically telling them to do. But there's a reason for that. Because politicians are answered to two things. They answer to votes, and then they answer to money. If the votes are not there, they're going to answer to the money. And they're answering to the money because the votes are not there. So it's essentially all their fault. It's the people, all of us, basically sitting on the couch, watching TV, watching Dancing with the Stars, not taking the 10 minutes that it takes to get up and get informed a bit and vote. And that's the reason we're in this predicament. Don't look at me. I voted in every election that I am eligible to vote in since I was 19. So I know you've got an enthusiastic choir here that you're. Oh, and I totally agree. I'm not blaming anybody. But you're right. I mean, I think no, it's, it's, it's it's all of these factors taken taken into consideration. We're going to have to do something. It's just when, and we hope that it's not too late and, mm-hmm. and not irreversible. That, and that's, the, that's the problem. Yeah, and that's something that I'll address because I think a part of the problem for younger generations now is that the problem seems insurmountable. It is so huge and overwhelming that people are paralyzed because they don't see what they can do that will actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and then people just get overwhelmed and don't do anything. And that's largely the government's fault too because... Uh, we well again it's voters who don't vote or or who they vote for but um it's the government who has the power to really cut down on on corporate pollution and the tar sands and all those things that the government in Canada and the states has, has just promoted instead of instead of putting restrictions on them so and that's something that would make a huge difference far beyond what any individual consumer can do mm-hmm. so i guess i'm going to go right ahead here and uh, there was this uh fellow that contacted me a couple of weeks ago, because here at Left at the Valley, we love helping the little guy. 
<laughs> as this fellow, let's call him Neil, uh, he's basically doing uh, activism. And since we're doing selectivism today, and I think this was quite appropriate, he's, do, he's doing a recall vote. Now, here in B.C., you can do these kind of things. B.C. is the only province, province in Canada that has recall legislation. He wants to recall a uh, MLA. He wants to recall Mark Dalton, which is actually uh, Mission and Maple Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've actually caught up with him. We've got like an eight-minute little interview with him. Let's go ahead and play that. All right, well, we're at some undisclosed location, Karen and I. How are you doing, Karen? Good, thanks. <laughs> and we're here with Neil. Now, Neil is here today because Neil is trying to sign up some people because he wants to. What do you want to do, Neil? Our whole plan is to recall our current MLA, Mark Dalton. Mark Dalton. Now, where does he, uh, where is he the, the MLA of? For people that don't know. Yeah, Mark Dalton is the current MLA, the current in, uh, independent MLA of Maple Ridge and Mission. He was the former liberal MLA, but he's currently running for the conservatives, so he became an independent. Okay, so his jurisdiction basically goes if you if you're in Mission, so you're going from Cedar and then you're going west, yeah, all the way to Maple Ridge. Yeah, exactly. So his his riding goes from uh, east of 224th and Maple Ridge to west of Cedar in Mission. Okay, everything so in between. If you live in that area, that area, listen up. So exactly. Neil, what are you trying to do here? You trying to you trying to assign how many signatures are you trying to get? We're looking for anywhere from fourteen to fifteen thousand at a minimum. Ultimately, we would look uh, we'd like about eighteen to nineteen thousand to be sure, because there's always going to be few that may ca- may not count, may not be may not sign up properly, whatever. Eighteen, ninety thousand would be fantastic. To recall Mark Dalton as a family. To recall Mark Dalton and ultimately force a by-election and okay. giving the people the people of Maple Ridge Mission another voice, another chance to practice their democracy. If they're not happy with uh, with Dalton's performance right now or they haven't been happy, um, this is a chance to speak up and have your voices heard and do something about it. Now this uh, recall legislation, uh, I guess, is not really geared up for you to succeed. It's supposed to be difficult. Absolutely, yeah. It, is, it isn't uh, set up to succeed simply because um, if it was, then this would happen all the time. And you can, ima- you can imagine the amount of time and effort and uh, and energy lost or wasted just by recalling these governments over and over and over. Recall has been tried before. It hasn't been, it hasn't been su- successful, but it's been tried in plenty of writings, um, including Dalton's in the past. But uh, we feel this time with, uh, with his inability to lead and his, his inability to actually act and advocate for the people of Mayport's mission, that we've got a pretty strong case here. And we have plenty of volunteers, plenty of energy, and uh, shouldn't be a problem here, I think. You think your odds are good? I think our odds are good because we're, uh, we've put in quite a lot of time. There's a big strategy behind this. Uh, we've got a lot of people on board. And like I said, it's, we're simply responding to, uh, to Dalton's inability to actually lead, fight, advocate, speak on, on behalf of everybody in Mayport's mission. Well, okay, there's, there's two interesting things I want to point out in there. You said it's not the first time that Mark Dalton's mm-hmm. facing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess you guys are really not satisfied with his services. <laughs> so what, what is it exactly about, can you give us a specific example of why we should recall Mark Dalton? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's, a, there's a ton of issues here. I mean, we can, we can look at anything from, the, one of the biggest ones that, uh, that's been in the recent news is the ambulances. Um, there was there was a, a, a firefighter there, who um, was a retired firefighter, but his wife had passed away. And uh, when he had found out, uh, when he had made the call to 911, the ambulance hadn't shown up for over a half hour. When he asked the, uh, the ambulance paramedic where, what took him so long, he said they had to come from North Delta. And that, to me, is quite, quite disheartening, the fact that they don't have, the, the government isn't willing to fund enough health care and enough paramedics for the, for the local communities. Mm. Um, so there weren't enough, um, there are not enough ambulances in the Maple Woods and Mission area, uh, let alone the Fraser Valley, Pitt Meadows and Mission. 
when approaching Mr. Dalton about something like health care or education or the environment, it's the same routine, it's the same shtick every time. Give you kind of a pat on the head, say, you know, we'll do the best we can. But to actually see any action, you know, to going to Victoria and speaking on people's behalf or just kind of towing the line, that's unfortunately where we're at. And I think, I think people are starting to see the true colors of how he operates. Not to mention just the fact that he was so quick to flip from uh, being a liberal to an independent to become a conservative, right? So whose interests does he have in mind here? Does he have my interests or yours or anybody else's? Or is he simply in it for himself? And I would like to think that, uh, unfortunately, I think he's just looking out for himself 24-7 here. And meanwhile, the rest of us are suffering for whatever reason. If it's, if it's our health care, if it's the wait list at the hospitals, if it's a wait list for a child getting speech therapy, if it's school... Uh, between, you know, the, I mean, we could go on and on with the, the public education funding compared to the private education. Uh, he was the uh, lobbyist for private schools, which just got another $30 million. Wow. <laughs> $30, $30 million for uh, private schools while they're actually cutting 50 something million from publics over the last two years. So that, that, should, I, that should get Karen really riled up. Well, there. right. So, and, and I would think, you know, we've done, we've done, we brought so much awareness to this, to Dalton alone over the last year and a half. And this is the result we get, is that we get $30 million given towards the private, which, which, you know, fair enough. I mean, education is education. But the funding formula between the privates and the public is so skewed. It's yeah. so wrong. So, so for Dalton to be voted in and to, and to act on, his, on, on behalf of his constituents, not all of them go to private school. I'm, I'm sure I could argue that most of them actually go to public school. Mm-hmm. So why would he not be there advocating for the public education system, let alone... Uh, not to mention the public health care, the environment, and everything else, right? Well, speaking of school, and this mm-hmm. is why they call me the king of segways, mm-hmm. apparently there's a very interesting story of him cashing a check. Yes. Yeah, he, had, um, he was a former teacher before becoming, uh, becoming a politician. He, he taught in Maple Ridge, uh, French immersion, I believe, and he had received a check from the BCTF. Um, the BCTF admitted their error in the fact that he's, he's a politician now for the Liberal government, which, as, as I've mentioned, fought tooth and nail. Uh, to fight the teachers and continue to fight the teachers in the courts now, but Mr. Dalton received the check and was pretty quick to cash it. He uh, he cashed it almost instantly, um, gave some to charity, I believe, and then he gave some to his daughter for a vac- for a vacation. Um, was eventually called out on it as the BCTF discovered their mistake. They uh, they contacted Mr. Dalton um, and they asked him where the check was, and he he admitted that he had cashed it. <laughs> did he ever refund it? He did refund it, but only after it had gone public, caught. being caught, and uh, and and a whole ton of people, including myself, started calling him and asking him why he would make that decision. There was another MLA who who received a check as well uh, by the name of uh, Don McCraig, who's another liberal MLA. He received the check, um, but he was quick to return it. And uh, return it, he said, you know what, here's the check. I, um, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, moved on, whereas our friend Mr. Dalton uh, just went and cashed it. Which to me, again, just shows the character of this guy. you know. Yeah, and and yeah. it's one more reason as to why do we want... Like, here he is looking out for himself again. Right, here's some quick money. I'm going to send my daughter on a vacation. Right, I'll give some to charity, but I'm going to send my kid on a vacation. And now he's you know? poised to try to run and become the MP for the. Region. Yeah, and now he, uh, with Randy Camp stepping aside, he uh, he's gone independent and he's looking to run uh, as um, as a federal conservative. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, ultimately, if if he does become, if he does get the nod for the conservatives, you know, I guess it's it's somewhat of a win because he would be out as our provincial MLA, but that would just be moving one problem to another problem, I think to another place. I mean, um, it would, we would end up having a by-election. 
but my ultimate goal is for him not to get the nod from the Conservatives and then also get recalled. Okay. I think that would just be incredible. So so if somebody's in, uh, in within the sound of our voice, within the audience, I guess, uh, that listens to this and wants to take part mm-hmm. and help you in your campaign, mm-hmm. where can they reach you? Um, well, we have a website set up. It's uh, it's all one word, bccitizens, plural, recall.com, bccitizensrecall.com. Mm-hmm. Um, all the information, the contact information is on there. Uh, we are just one group uh, that's a provincial-wide group, the Mayport's Mission uh, chapter, I guess. Uh, all the contact information is on there, and that's no problem to get a hold of us there. There's also um, a Facebook group um, on, uh, I think it's called Mission Mayport's Mission Recall, 2014-2015. Yeah, Mayport's Mission Recall, 2014-2015. You can check us out on there as well. And, uh, there's tons of contact information on there. Well, Neil, I wish you the best of luck, and please Thank keep you. us appraised of this. I will, I will, uh-huh. and uh, and I appreciate the support as well, and the uh, bringing the awareness to this, and uh, yeah, we can uh, we can only hope for the best here. It gives people a chance. I, like I like I've said pri- previously, I'm I'm hoping that ultimately the goal is to remove him from uh, from office and get somebody else in there, and and at the same time send a message to the Liberal government that that they they just can't go about this business and yeah. and how they're conducting things. And uh, but I think more importantly, one of the biggest things I want to do is turn people onto politics and get people involved and show them that if they do get involved and there's enough of there's enough of uh, of a movement and enough action that things can happen and change for the better. So I'm really hoping that this inspires other people to get involved with us or get involved in a recall in a recall uh, campaign in their own in their own local wherever they are. Thanks, yeah. Neil. Yeah, thank you very we'll much. We'll stay in touch. All right. And there you go. That was Neil. Yeah. So. So today the topic is slacktivism, and you got lots on this. <clears throat> well. um... Well, first of all, your your thought on Neil and his, his his thing. You think he's doing it right? Yeah, I'm I'm impressed with what Neil does. So, uh, the interesting thing here is that so when we you and I first discussed this, and I was like, well, there's no recall mechanism. And then I went and looked it up, and I'm like, oh, actually, there has been a recall mechanism in BC since 1995. And so, although that's relatively recent, it's still what 25 years that that's that's been there. And I. I you other people had discussed this and a lot of people didn't know that there was actually a recall mechanism so i'd say the very first step to being an activist is to get yourself informed and they are his group are very informed they know what they're doing they know they need 40 percent of the votes they know how to collect them they have a specific purpose in mind and they have a deadline and they are right on top of it so they are doing activism in the very best way possible and of course if you happen to be in the area you happen to live in that jurisdiction where uh, Mr. Dalton is uh, is uh, representing you. Uh, feel free to either contact Neil or you know or not. You know, I have to say I'm not in that writing, so no, you know, we're not. What if uh, I, to we're me what what you know whether Mark Dalton deserves to be recalled or not? To me, that's kind of a that's it's very critical to them in that writing. But to me, that's kind of a, a moot point almost. For the, certainly for the purposes of this show, um, the fact is that these people are getting informed. And getting involved, and um, you know that's that's like he says that's what politics is actually about, and you know people need to to get involved in that, and that that is the only way you can affect the change that you want is is just to get involved and do it. Yeah. And um, I was going to say something about the actually our representative here is uh, Simon Gibson. Yeah. Yeah, he's in Abbotsford. We tried to get an interview with Simon Gibson. I'd like to for him to come on to Left of the Valley, but you know it's like they they asked me to. Submit a whole bunch of questions or whatever to ask him and all that. It's like really tightly controlled. It's like, geez, I 
I'm not going to be able to get the real guy. I'm just going to get some rehash mm-hmm. uh, politics speak, <clears throat> right? So. Yep. Anyway. Okay, so selectivism. So what do we mean by selectivism? This is kind of a pet peeve of mine. So, <laughs> But I, by selectivism, I mean people who go on Facebook and they click like. Because, you know, there's a picture. If you click like, if this girl gets 100,000 likes, then she'll get whatever surgery she needs to save her or whatever. I'm sorry, but that's not going to happen. Clicking like shows that you like something to the circle of friends that you have. And that is all it does. It does not cause change in any way, shape, or form. Are you telling me if I click like on Facebook, the world does not change? That's correct. Oh, I know. No. I know. All this time. Another thing that really bothers me, online petitions. In Canada, there is absolutely no legislation, no bills, no laws that require any government to accept online petitions. I shouldn't say any government. There might be a provincial government that does that, but not in B.C. and not federally. So you can sign 100,000 online petitions and you have done nothing. The government is not in any way obligated to look at those petitions. So you're far better off. Well, we'll get into that, but you're far better off to write a letter. You're even far better off to sign an online form letter because those do go to the MPs and the MLAs. They do look at them. Some of them probably take them more into account than others, but a petition is a guaranteed no-go. If you sign a petition for a company, like say you want, I don't know, McCain's to not employ slaves, I'm making this up obviously, then you can send a you can do that. You can send a petition to a company. They're probably far more likely to listen to you because they are trying to sell you a product and they know if a lot of people are angry at them that they're not going to sell product. They're quite sensitive about these things too. So that's fine. If you're sending it to a company, that you might get a good success rate. But a government in Canada, guaranteed not. The United States government looks at them if they get a huge number or something like 100,000 signatures online, but there's no obligation for them to do anything. There's only an obligation that they'll look at it, they'll read it, they're done. So, you know, there's far better ways to get involved. And, you know, blogging is another thing. People blog. I blog. Like, people do that. It's kind of cathartic. They feel like they're doing something. They're spreading their opinion. But in reality, unless you're a very famous person already, you're just spreading your opinion probably to... Everybody blogs. It's just like a dear diary. Yeah, and so you know that might make you feel better, but it's not actually going to affect change in most cases. And another thing that people do, so these are these are my examples of selectivism, yep. things that people do, and they think they're making a difference, but the reality is they're not actually making a difference. They start a radio podcast. Yes, that's another. <laughs> thing. <laughs> but donating to a charity. In some cases, it's very effective. There's charities like Doctors Without Borders that are very, very good. They make a lot of difference in the world. But there are others, and I have to include Greenpeace in this. Greenpeace used to be a very effective environmental organization. They grew very large. They are no longer an effective environmental organization. There are a lot of media. There are a lot of press releases. There's very little actual action. And most of the money that's donated to Greenpeace goes into keeping Greenpeace existing. Greenpeace has done talks with governments where they have sort of ended up advocating for deforestation because it's been in their own best interest to do so. You can look this up online and didn't do a ton of research on this, but but I have in the past. And, And they are not an effective organization anymore. I'm not picking on Greenpeace. There's lots of them. The point is... (laughs) There's lots of places you can waste your money. The point is, do your research, know about the organization, ask how much of their their 
their donations goes to operating costs because in a lot of cases it's like 90%. And it doesn't really matter even if it's a religious organization. A lot of them, the money mostly goes into promoting that organization and very little goes to the cause that they say they're promoting. Yeah. So do your research every single time. So those are slacktivist things. And the thing that bothers me about slacktivism is that people do these things and they think, hey, I've made a difference and now I'm going to go have fun and I'm not going to worry about it because they think they've actually made a difference. But the point is that you haven't yet made a difference. So if you really are passionate about doing something, and it doesn't matter if it's environmental or atheist or any kind of thing, human rights, any issue that you might be interested in, if you click like or if you sign an online petition and then you think, I've done my duty and I'm going home now, you haven't actually done anything. So if you're passionate about that and you really do want to see a difference, you need to do something else. And I and that's what bothers me about these things, especially on online petitions, because they take people's impetus and they misplace it so that nothing actually happens, even though these people probably really do want to make a change and would do something else, but they feel like they've done something effective. You see what I mean? It takes yeah. away from actual effective activism. I'm, I'm just wondering if um, if you feel that uh, maybe some of these companies, uh, use Greenpeace again, for for example, that maybe they know that they know that you know people are are uh, kind of lazy, I guess, normally, right? And they know that you know if you give us money, we'll do the work for you, and you know maybe people will feel better because they got a bit of money and they play on that. I'm sure that's absolutely true. And Greenpeace, like I said, started out as a very active, very passionate organization. And uh, and so they're banking on that name still. And I'm sure that they do do that, that, that you know, they, people do believe that they're being much more effective with their money than they actually are. Yeah, I think a, uh, what's his name, uh, the guy, the uh, Sea Shepherd, Shepherd guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, jeez. Shoot. My, his, his name just went Bill Watson? No. Oh, I forget. Anyway, he was one of the founding members yes. of Greenpeace. And, and he, he would and agree with you, I think. Yeah, he's, he's left the the organization because he said it became too watered down and ineffectual. And it's kind of funny, because the, on the opposite side of the spectrum there, you got, um, I believe his name is Steve Moore. He was also a founding member of Greenpeace, but now today he's a huge uh, proponent of uh, ethical oil and that kind of stuff, right? And climate change is not true, and he they, they always introduce him with that. Oh, he was a founding member of Greenpeace, in other words, crank up the uh, the uh, uh, credibility, mm-hmm. you know. And now he's talking for ethical oil. Here he is, Steve Moore. Woo! And, and I think it's it's that's manipulation why, of the public. It really yes, is. And that's why you have to be educated. That's why you have to do your research for yourself. So, um, activism. The definition is the doctrine or practice of vigorous action or involvement as a means of achieving achieving political or other goals sometimes by demonstrations or protests, et cetera. So it's some, that is the, the most visible sign of activism that we see, you know, marches on the street corner and stuff. And, and a lot of people in Canada, I think, are just uncomfortable doing that. But the point is that's not the only way and, and sometimes not the most effective way to get things done. So I would suggest that if you are, say, use environment as an as a example. Yeah, let's use environment. So you really feel strongly about climate change and you want to make a change. Well, maybe you live in a small town and there's no protests or groups around that you can get involved in. Do things that you can. I think the another big problem is that people feel overwhelmed, and we've mentioned this earlier, especially with climate change, because it's such a huge problem and one person couldn't possibly tackle it on their own. But if you 
you are someone who can do something. Don't feel like as a person you have no power. So grow a garden. You know, plant your own vegetables and, and eat them and not have to buy things that have been transported from Japan or China or California to your store. That is a big step that you can take that reduces emissions from transportation. Uh, then you know that it's grown without the use of pesticides. You have it in your control to, you know, have an envir- a small environment that you can control and keep organic or whatever it is that you want to do. So, so that is one thing that you can do. You can... Um, just take the bus. You can use recyclable, not uh, reusable bags instead of plastic bags. All those things are a step forward. They are a small step, but they are something that you can personally do and have that sense of, I'm owning this myself, and then maybe you take a bigger step. Maybe if you're uncomfortable going to a protest, if you've done other things first, then you'll feel like you can make that, that next step. But And even protests, although I've certainly gone to protests and walked on the streets, Sometimes they're effective and sometimes they're not. The big thing about activism is it has to have a very definite end goal. So if you just go march so that you're drawing awareness to something, you might draw awareness. You might make people realize that this is going on and they didn't before. But most likely they've already read it in the news. And if they were going to do something, they'd be doing something. So you you know, I'd, if you have a very specific thing, like a P3 water thing here in, in Mission and Abbotsford is a good example. Yeah, that was they a couple a, years ago. Yeah, they had a very definite goal. There was, supposed to, there was a proposed public-private partnership for water control in Abbotsford and Mission. Groups opposed it. They very specifically opposed this particular company, this particular proposal that Mission Abbotsford Council had on the table. They informed people, educated people. There was a very definite end date, obviously, when that... Um, you know, when the city had to decide by if they were going to have this public-private partnership. So all those things made for very effective activism. So um, that's that's kind of one of the um, hallmark of a good activism is that it has a very specific goal that you work towards and it has a very specific end date at which time you end that particular action and move on to something else. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... We're learning. Um, so, I don't know. Is there something specific you wanted to talk about? Because I could go on about this forever. <laughs> well, we don't have forever, but you give us all the information you think we should we should know. Uh, so, so, so far we've established that uh, signing online, it's pretty much bullshit. It is. Um, doing some protest, uh, sometimes, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it seems that you know, especially if you're in in Canada, they they remember like when they had this uh, huge protest in Toronto, they were des- they were designating some free speech zones. Uh-huh. Uh, I I think that's uh, ouch. I, I don't know I don't know how to express that. I think it's it's outrageous that they would do such a thing. I think so too. But uh, things like that, and it's the same with uh, legal strikes or illegal strikes. The whole point of a strike is that it's illegal. And if you aren't doing something that they don't want you to do, mm, yeah. then you're not doing anything that's any good. Yeah. That's the whole point of a protest is that you are going outside what the government, in this case, wants you to do. And you're making your displeasure known. So free, freedom of speech zones, those free speech zones they had in Toronto, well, if you only went to one to express your opinion, then they've already won. Yeah, the yeah. point is that you have to go beyond what they want you to do. Yeah, and you hear that all, all very often here. I mean, uh, for example, here in Vancouver, you had, um, and once in a while you get a, a trucker strike, and especially at the port. 
and you hear people say, well, you know, I wouldn't mind them if they went on strike and do their protest as long as they don't impede traffic. Well, then they're not making any kind of impact, exactly, are they? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, the, the point of it is to disturb the normal business as usual thing. Exactly. So it brings focus into the uh, the issue and the problem. So otherwise, all you end up is basically, you know, you have people on the side of the road with uh, placards and all you hear is crickets, you know? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm not necessarily advocating for... Well, certainly not advocating for violence. I don't think anyone should get hurt, but but I do think that um, you know you can't conform to the government and at the same time make a change to the government. You know you have to be willing to to do things that they don't want you to do. So um, civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is effective. Um, yeah. But having said that, maybe there there I think you have to really know your topic. You have to know what you want to achieve. And the most effective way to achieve it. So civil disobedience might be the most effective way, or it might not be. A court case or a public awareness campaign might be more effective. Which kind of brings us back to petitions. So online petitions aren't effective. So what are petitions that the government will actually look at? So uh, for the BC legislature, mm-hmm. um, they, you have to have a very carefully worded petition they actually have on the the government of BC mm-hmm. uh, website. They have a, a form there that shows you exactly how it has to be a specific wording, a very, they call it a prayer, a petition for a specific thing that you want. They call want it a prayer? <laughs> from the government. Oh, I think geez. that's the original meaning of the word prayer, actually. I don't think it had anything to do with God originally. Please, sir. Please read my so, petition. <laughs> so you have to make a respectful request that the House take or refrain from taking some sort of action in response to an alleged grievance. If you don't do this, they're not going to look at it. So very specific wording of a very specific thing you want them to do. So you can't say, stop climate change. you got to no. say, can you please reduce carbon emission in vehicles? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And in the BC legislature, as far as I can tell, there's no minimum number of signatures. One person could send in a petition. The chances that they'll look at it in that case are pretty small, mm-hmm. but there's no there's no minimum number of signatures. So, um, so you can do that, you, but you also can't do it online. It has to have a piece of paper with your actual handwriting, with your actual address and your actual signature. Mm-hmm. That's the only way they look at it. You submit it to a member of the legislature, they take it to the legislative assembly. You yeah. can't do it yourself. It has to be done by an MLA. And for the House of Commons, federally, it's a similar thing. There's a minimum number of 25 signatures on your piece of paper, actual handwritten signatures with your actual address. You take it to a a member of the House of Commons, and um, they submit it for you. And they don't have an obligation to do that. In, In all cases, they do not have to do this. But... Most of them feel an obligation to oh, do it, well, and yeah, I, I, I mean, do believe that's true. I do believe you're if you go to your, but you're still a voter, right? Yes, if you go to your MP and say I have this petition, I think most of them would do something about uh, it. They actually they actually do this because, uh, as far as the there is a, a bit of a strange little formula they use. Um, when, for example, on the civic election, uh, on the, the civic level, they assume that uh, for every one signature they see, this person knows um, two people. That agree with them. On the provincial level, uh, for every signature they see, they the uh, they basically say that this person knows about five mm-hmm. people that agree with this person. And when it comes to federal, it's about twenty. So your signature is worth 
depending on the level of government, mm-hmm. is, is, is it's more than just your signature. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they say, well, this person knows five people, you know, that uh, on the provincial level that agrees with him or her. Uh, so even if you do have a hundred thousand signatures, essentially in their mind they're saying there's five hundred thousand people that are agreeing with this. Mm-hmm. So and that's powerful. It is powerful. But when it's put into the media, though, they'll always say, "Oh, there was only mm-hmm. you know X amount," and they always try to dumb it down. Yeah, downplay yeah. it for sure, for sure. Um, and similarly, if you, uh, I'm not, I don't know federally the facts for this, but if you write to your MLA on an actual piece of paper and put it in the actual mail with an actual stamp, they have to respond to you. If you send them an email, they don't have to. Most likely they will. Every time I've written a letter to an MLA, an email to an MLA, they have responded to me. Yeah, with a very generic email that they sent to just about everybody. (laughs) Although I have to say when I sent a letter to an email to um, my MP and... Your uh, MP? And the... Um, Minister for Agriculture and Elizabeth May. I sent it to all three of them. Ooh. Elizabeth May is the only one who got back to me, and I don't think it was just a form letter. So I was very impressed with that. Anyway, I'm I'm always very impressed with, with May. I mean, she's anyway. But so anyway, if you want to contact your MLA and you want to be sure of a response, send them an actual letter, yeah. and they have to respond to you. And send them one from a typewriter, <laughs> because there's like three typewriters left in the country, and I think two of them are owned by serial killers. So they take it very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I have a typewriter. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. So, and I'm not like trying to demonize the politicians. I think that most of them really want to help their constituents. And if you really express yourself and are respectful, I think they will listen to you. And I think if you and it's their job to listen five to you. people that you know do it, or 20 people that you know send a letter to the MLA all expressing a similar sentiment they are going to listen to you. Yeah. And I think that is powerful. And uh, I think that if people, you know, want to do their their activism within the law, <laughs> within the, the boundaries that we have established, do write to your MLA. Don't be afraid to do it. They're just people. Just write them a letter. Uh, I don't her. know about that. They're just people. And that brings me to another thing that we all, I think, remember the uh, the HSD recall campaign that was. Yeah, I recall that. <laughs> that's called an initiative petition, um, and it requires the, the signatures of 10% of all eligible voters across the province. And uh, it has been tried a few times. the The rescinding of the HSD was the only successful one. But I think that's really cool as well. BC is still the only province that has that kind of legislation, and it was used successfully. And I just think that's brilliant that, you know, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of coordination to have some kind of initiative like that. But if you're really passionate about it, you should do it. What you might not know is actually when that happened, it was uh, spearheaded by uh, former Premier Bill Van Der Zandt. Everyone knows that. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I'm saying what you might not know <laughs> is I actually interviewed the guy. Bill Van Der Zam, you know, called him the Zam, and, you know, it's not an interview that we use for Left of the Valley, but I might have it somewhere if I dig it up somewhere. <laughs> I think it's so funny because you didn't live here when he was a premier. No, uh, I didn't. You probably have a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, totally, you know. But, you know, he he was a nice fellow, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, yeah. I, I took a picture with him, and uh, he actually uh, pushed on my hat or something. <laughs> anyway, we had a good time. Very personable guy. <laughs> Okay, so my uh, my final thoughts for I admire anyone who's trying to make the world a better place in whatever way that they want to do that. So 
I'm not trying to discourage anyone. I'm just saying that if you want to be an effective activist, you there's a few kind of rules of thumb. Start with a small group of people that you know well, that you know will support each other, that you have similar ideas, and uh, and you'll watch each other's backs. Be specific about what you want to do. Have a definite target or definite people, definite company, definite issue. Um, and have a measurable target so you'll be able to know at the end of your activism campaign if it worked or not. So if if it's too vague, you won't know if you actually changed anyone's mind or made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and do something that is positive and that will inspire other people to get involved in it. Like start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone gets tired of having people bash ideas and constantly be negative. You need to be positive and and people need to see that you're actually doing something, not just sitting on your couch complaining. Mm-hmm. Um, be realistic, obviously, and make it time sensitive. So have a specific end date when you're not going to do it anymore so that you can recharge and then go at it again or do something different. So you don't burn out. So you don't burn out. That's very and, good advice. And a positive ending on a positive note, does everyone remember CFCs, chlorofluoro fluorocarbons? And when I was a teenager, yes. that was the huge issue, right? So CFCs, they're thinning the ozone layer. It was very specific. It wasn't, oh, global warming, oh, climate change, we're all going to die. It was, hey, these things are thinning the ozone layer and we need to stop using them. There were stickers on all the hairspray bottles. There was then government regulations. And there was just a broad campaign for people to stop buying products with CFCs, which I did, which everyone did. It was no longer profitable. Yes. Government regulations. And it, it, it's we, over. Did, we did it's change done. the world that day. There is yeah. no more yeah. issue with CFCs. Well, I mean, the, old, the hole in the ozone layer is still there. Yes, but, but I'm saying we're not contributing to it still that's actively. Right. It's not getting any bigger. It's actually shrinking. It was a specific targeted campaign. It was very effective. And I think if we attack global climate change in that manner now, instead of being overwhelmed by it, we can still make a difference. Totally. Excellent. Was that it? I want to hear some more. (laughs) I talk too fast, and I think people are probably really sick of hearing me. (laughs) (laughs) Time for my rant. Wasn't that enough ranting? (laughs) (laughs) No, that was like information. That wasn't ranting. Uh, You know, this week uh, we lost Leonard Nimoy. This past week we lost Leonard Nimoy. Uh, You knew him as Mr. Spock in the original Star Trek TV series. Now, there is something interesting about the life of this actor. The man behind the ears of Spock wasn't known as a legendary actor, and although we barely saw him outside the role of our favorite Vulcan... His contribution to pop culture is gargantuan, to the point of cementing his name as iconic. Leonard Nimoy didn't invent Spock. He didn't give him his lines or script, his reaction. We owe that to Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, a legend in his own right. But what Leonard Nimoy did do is make Mr. Spock a, you know, he's a cool, calculating, intellectual, emotionless character, likable. He made us relate to Spock. He gave a face to reason. He was that bold, in-your-face, sorry, he gave a face to reason in a world all too often charged with emotion and illogical reactions. He was that bold, in-your-face statement you didn't want to hear. He showed us the real reflection in the mirror about the human condition, the one we don't want to see, the one we color with tales of myth and religion. Spock spoke plainly and logically about any situation, and all too often his logic kicked us off the pedestal we hoisted ourselves upon. And for that, he has my gratitude. 
In a world where intellectuals, scientists, and atheists are vilified as cold, emotionless, and uncaring, Leonard Nimoy's Spock showed us that there is a time to be that cool customer, and that despite all the emotions in the world, facts are facts, and science is the way to truth, not emotional tales of gods and demons. In putting a human side to Spock, Leonard Nimoy has given us a worthy character. Who knows, one day, Spock might be a legendary mythical figure, too. And although I hope there won't be a religious movement around the Mr. Spock character in the future, I can't help but think he'd be a better example for humanity to follow than all the gods and sons of gods before him. Live long and prosper. Well, that takes us to the end of our show, yes? Yes. Live long and prosper, indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen, for uh, for that uh, very uh, um, great. <laughs> it has rendered you speechless. Yes, it's, and that's a, that's a thing in itself, right there. Uh, for everything that you I just taught us here about slacktivism. Just sleeping, that's all. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> this is Thank why you, Kevin. <laughs> uh, you can. Uh, <laughs> uh, last time I promised you guys an interview with David Smalley We were supposed to have that for today But unfortunately David was under the weather But uh, we are rescheduling So uh, uh, we'll uh, keep you guys in touch with that one uh, David Smalley, he's the uh, host of uh, Dogma Debate with David Smalley And he does atheism in a very diplomatic way So keep in touch with that uh, keep, Sorry um, I guess you can always uh, look up uh, leftatthevalley.com or you can uh, love mail, email, hate mail, tell me how much I'm, I'm good or how much I suck at leftatvalley at outlook.com. Anything else you want to add? Um, if you write us a letter for the stamp, we promise we'll respond. <laughs> <laughs> good one. <laughs> Until next time. Bye. Kingdom of sin.